But thoughts of home bring us to the greatest story of all, the inspiring tale of a little nation that has encompassed the world. It begins in a tiny island off the west of Europe, under whose flag live today a quarter of the world's inhabitants. One of the smallest countries on the map is responsible for the mightiest commonwealth of nations in history. In the year 878, England was divided like this. At Athelney and Somerset, King Alfred was in hiding, dreaming of empire. You will remember how Alfred sought shelter in the house of a cowherd, whose wife asked him to watch her cakes, and how Alfred, occupied with graver things, let the cakes burn. But it was then that the empire was born. The diagrams show how it expanded through the years, with more and more of France coming into the picture. But in 1360, we lost Normandy, Brittany, Anjou and Maine, leaving only the Channel Islands in 1558. In Elizabeth's memorable reign, Sir Walter Raleigh sailed from Portsmouth across the Atlantic for Roanoke Island with our first colonists. But in 1620, when the Mayflower with the Pilgrim Fathers arrived, not a living soul was found of the first British settlers in America. Such was the Empire's sad beginning. Since those days, things have moved quickly, and now the great cavalcade of empire makes a grand spectacle. So widespread is it, far-flung as the Pakasabs would say, that one half is in darkness when the other half is in the light. Those early pioneers have left us a great inheritance, of which we may be justly proud. For might and right go hand in hand in these great possessions beyond the sea. King Alfred did not dream in vain, but even he could never have imagined such a colossal achievement. Hello, good evening and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. We are zipping through the sign of four by... Arthur Conan Doyle, the second outing of Sherlock Holmes. And today's episode is focusing on the British Empire. My name is Catherine, I am as ever your host. And I am SDR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. And I still have a cold. I am recording this back to back with the last episode, so I really, really apologise if I'm even more nasal than usual. This is it's just really awkward, to be honest. I am most of the way through. It's with my editor at the moment, most of the way through the process of getting my sign of full context book written so today's episode is going to be a little bit of a sneaky peek of that as well so a little bit of a disclaimer at the start bit of a content warning i am as you guessed from the fact this episode is about the empire going to be talking about the british empire i am white british and i am not especially proud of a lot of stuff which is mentioned in this episode to say the least there were quite a lot of mentions of massacres and people of colour being really, really unpleasantly treated, to say the least, by my countrymen. If at any point I'm using 
we. I mean, quote unquote, the British of the 19th century. And I am sorry in advance if you find this really tough listening at the moment. Feel free, I will do content warnings before I say anything gross, but feel free to just skip some bits because trust, researching this was absolutely vile. This book has been a slog. So, what is the British Empire? It is broadly something that started in Queen Elizabeth's reign when England started to maintain colonies all over. The 19th century is where it picks up. So the Brits, basically it's what we call a chartered company. A company called the East India Company was set up by the Brits and it was given a royal charter which is like an endorsement from the crown. They went over to India to try and make money and they sort of had their own armies and then after a lot of stuff went wrong the British government took over and then we sort of ended up in charge of the whole of India as a really simplified story. At one point the British army, British empire was the largest to have ever existed. It covered 25% of the world's land surface. We are talking 412 million inhabitants, 23% of the world's population, and we're talking the empire on which the sun never sets. So some horrific things were done, as you would expect, with an empire. But that's that's it in statistics. Arthur Conan Doyle, from what we have guessed with him, kind of liked this. <laughs> he was he was pro everything that we would consider to be a little bit dodged today. His work in general supported this tradition of masculine Victorian imperialism. Generally, the idea was that Brits, through some kind of social Darwinism, were some kind of like chosen people. We had this like responsibility to rule the world because we were the best. Right, okay. And a lot of this came through like the new setup of public schools. So the idea of the gentleman, you're born to rule. You leave school knowing that you are going to rule the world. Doyle, however, kind of likes being a scholar at the same time as being like rugger, cricket, pip-pip old chap, super sports. So even though he is pro-empire, he's a little bit uneasy with it. The other thing is, even though social Darwinism is horrifically and disgustingly racist, he does believe in it, but he is of Irish ancestry, which makes you officially the worst kind of white person if when generally when these horrible 19th century racists do a hierarchy of people. The worst kind of white person is the Irish which is awesome. It also became a little bit weirdly linked with uh, missionary work. This idea that if you're an Anglican, it's your responsibility to go out and teach, you know, teach these poor people the ways of our church. Which again, Doyle didn't super have a problem with, um, but he was brought up Catholic. So he wasn't really that into it. The kind of the idea of it is whenever there's an imperial conflict, Holmes emerges as this kind of this guy who can just like reconcile everything. When there's a problem with an outsider, he jumps in. He is the ultimate Brit in the face of all this like uncertainty about empire. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about this next episode when I talk a bit more about fears, scary things, scary things and fears. Where does the empire explicitly come up in the book? Well, the short answer is everywhere. It's everything. Let's take an easy one. Watson is a veteran of the Afghanistan wars. He says, I made no remark, however, but sat 
sat nursing my wounded leg, I had a Jezail bullet through some time before, and though it did not prevent me from walking, it ached wearily at every change of the weather. A Jezail is the sniper rifle that was used by Afghani troops in uh, the first and second Afghan war. We are assuming that Watson fought in the second Afghan war, but because it's slightly nebulous when it's set, so it could be like Watson's an older man who um, served in the first one as a younger man. It kind of kind of depends. I'm going to talk about both. Also, I mean, how horribly ironic is it that in the updated Sherlock, in the updated Sherlock, he's still an Afghan veteran, but it's the one now. I'm laughing because it's so horrible. In 1839, Brits are worried about Russia. Russia might be able to invade India and take away all the nice things we are getting from India, like tea and opium and curry? I don't really know, actually. Cloth. Cloth and opium and all the nice things we like. Because they'd signed a treaty with the Persian Empire. Right. So Britain decides the best way to keep Russia out of Afghanistan is to support a puppet regime in Afghanistan. So there's these two dudes who've been rivals for the throne for ages and they decide they're going to pick one and support him. Which was kind of awful because getting into Afghanistan to do that was ridiculously tough and full of disgusting atrocities committed by the Brits. Once they got there, it all just went wrong again. Turns out, even though he was a relatively good king, the puppet guy, the Brit just sort of ignored everything. Like, they just didn't do anything that was sympathetic to the local traditions. They were just like, nope, we're doing everything our way now. And understandably, the people of Afghanistan were a little uh, put off by this and rebelled. Victoria, Queen Victoria, jumped in and she'd been pretty ambivalent and was saying how sad it is. Even though there were a lot of conflicts and there were some survivors, the image that the public had was um, the lone soldier on a dying horse. And it's in the Tate Britain in London. It's by a painter called Elizabeth Thompson. And that was a popular image that we had, um, was the noble soldier somehow surviving. Fast forward to the Second Afghan War. At that point, the British Army had done a pretty good job in getting what they wanted to get. They had an unbroken record of achievement against Sindhis, Baluchis, Sikh, Chinese, Russians, Indian, Burmese, Maori, Abyssinian, Chinese again, and the Ashantis. You have this uh, image of Tommy Atkins. He's um, a typical soldier, like Joe Bloggs. It's like a nothingy name. He was stalwart, indomitable, and brave. He was noble. He was all about civilization. Like, at that point, Britain pretty much got control of Afghanistan and just sort of wanted to prop up the borders. It was pretty awful. But one interesting link I made was there might have been a real veteran of the Second Afghan War who inspired Dr. Watson. This guy was called Surgeon Major Preston. He was shot in the right place in terms of like the right geographical location and he did manage to survive 
just about, he rejoins the army and he might have met Conan Doyle while Conan Doyle was a GP and this guy Preston was coming through Portsmouth on his way home. So it's entirely possible that he heard this story and Watson is based on this real guy, Preston. Let's talk a little bit about India as well. Uh. So the Mughal Empire, which had been ruling India, was kind of on its way out. Initially, Brits were hired as tax collectors and then started taking sides in disputes and propping different people up. And then they sort of took over quite horribly. Mary Marston's dad was in an Indian regiment which means that he was a leader in this. Now, I remember when I started reading Sign of Four to do this project, and I remember just coming home to my boyfriend and being like, everybody's done a genocide. Like, from that point of view now, Mary Marston's dad was probably a war criminal, but we'll ignore that. Because, like, I mean, that's even the worst genocide I'm going to talk about today. India and the empire is everything. India is everywhere around Doyle and it's everywhere around the readers. You've got tea that you're drinking, sugar and tobacco. You're wearing Indian cloth. The names of your streets are something to do with India. You are possibly employed, somehow involved with the empire. Even Doyle, we can argue as a GP in Portsmouth, was employed by the empire because he mostly worked with troops that were home. Everything is linked to this idea of India as part of the empire. People kind of sort of just took it for granted. They didn't actually like think about the nitty gritty of it too much. Until 1857. That Jonathan Small in Sinophore describes like this. The whole country was up like a swarm of bees. Wherever the English could collect in little bands, they just held the ground that their guns commanded. Everywhere else, they were helpless fugitives. It was a fight of the millions against the hundreds. And the cruelest part of it was that these men we'd fought against Foot, horse and gunners were our own picked troops, whom we had taught and trained, handling our own weapons, blowing our own bugle calls. So, 1857. Britain is pretty well established. There, however, surprisingly enough... (coughs) We were not treating our local troops very well. And there were just simply not enough Europeans to take over the whole thing without the assistance of local people. Housing and pay was incredibly poor. Job prospects were incredibly poor. The uniform was completely impractical. And it absolutely was handled by the higher caste people. So the whole system became basically a microcosm of the problems that were already existent in society. Everything was dull. Kind of boring. And then one day, the British decided to update their weapons going from an old styly rifle where you tip gunpowder in the end to like um one with shotgun cartridges but you had to get off the wrapping of the shotgun cartridge so the idea was that you bit it off then to open it up then stuffed it in the end of your rifle but for it to go in the rifle it needed some kind of lubrication so they used animal fat either like beef or pork is forbidden to many different religious groups and that was the bit where it all went wrong and these regiments that had been trained by the brits to work for them were like now nah, we've had enough of this and uprisings were coming across 
everywhere. This is where we start getting the descriptions of local people, of Indian people, being satanic and evil. Yeah, this is reflected in the description that Small gives of the Indian mutiny. And this is kind of where it comes from. So despite it being a physical attack on people, it was presented in the media in London as being an attack on everything that Britain stood for. So you attack a train, it means it's an attack against like the idea of modern transport. British papers painted it this way and this was the bit where people started to wake up in terms of oh oh this is what's out there 57 is where we stop seeing the empire as being like an abstract concept and it becomes real and it becomes scary no one can be indifferent it's updated incredibly quickly we're talking real time give or take a couple of weeks behind real time but dispatches are coming in day by day ssm and this event is emerging like a serial novel horribly horribly apparently this is the point at which many individuals started using the n-word for indian and appeared very 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 regularly oh god it's the, the whole thing is you read it one way through the eyes of modern historians and then you read it a different way through contemporary accounts and it is just the biggest cognitive dissonance like Honestly, read about this for yourselves. One thing you maybe don't want to read about, and I'm going to be honest about this, this is where it gets really, really vile, is when we talk about the Andaman Islands. So the Andaman Islands was a prison colony set up... Well, the Andaman Islands were a set of islands, but a prison colony was set up there by the Brits for prisoners of the Raj, whether you were a British soldier who did something wrong, whether you were a local guy who did something wrong, this was the prison that they had. Mary Morstan dad was the superintendent of this penal colony. What's consi- what happened on the Andaman Islands is widely considered to be a literal genocide, as the people who lived on the Am- Andaman Islands were decimated. Mary Morstan's dad is is just an awful, awful person. He perpetuated a genocide. And this is just sort of ignored in the book because it just sort of, it plays into these other sort of imperial heroism narratives. And it wouldn't have seemed that exceptional because a lot of people would have had relatives in the forces. And if you'd have asked them, they probably would have done some terrible things. I don't like to make sweeping generalisations, and I'm referring to something specific when I say that. So my great-uncle does a family tree. He's really into it since he retired. And he asked me to check some history on some of the dates he found. And we worked out, well, I I worked out on that to tell my great-uncle that one of my relatives was a squaddy during a massacre that took place in China. Um, there's no distinct proof that he did a massacre. There's just documents saying that he was in the right place at the right time. And I kind of... (coughs) I mean, I'm touch wood, I hope he was having a sick day or something. But that's something I've had to reconcile with within myself and that's a very modern reaction not to take these things for granted that in itself is not seen as something appalling it's kind of a paternalistic it's kind of a respectable role what is really really awful and i found this from a guardian article which is quite easy to find is there are people alive today who were at this penal colony they are very very old men were interviewed by the guardian this prison was open until the 1930s and there 
the descriptions of torture are horribly horribly graphic if you really want to read about the experience of being in this prison environment where small was held where morston and Sholto's parents worked you can do that but it was the most harrowing reading that said the contemporary writing on it makes it seem kind of nice it is an industrious, self-supporting, and for the most part, peaceable population, where good order and a quiet demeanour are enforced by stringent discipline, although the inherent evil nature of so many criminals cannot be invariably held in check. And ghastly occurrences have from time to time been recorded in almost every nook and corner of Port Blair, the headquarters of the penal settlement. Yeah, people are like, it's fine, it's fine. Um, it's not fine. Let's talk about the Agra treasure, though. It is a collection of gems 143 diamonds of the first water including one which has been called i believe the great Mughal, and said to have been the second largest stone in existence then there were 97 very fine emeralds 170 rubies some of which however were small there were 40 carbuncles 210 sapphires 61 agates and a great quantity of beryls onyxes cat's eyes turquoises and other stones the very names of which i did not know at the time though I have become more familiar with them since. Besides this, there were nearly 300 very fine pearls, 12 of which were set in a gold coronet. Yeah, this is a real thing. I mean, I don't know if you've heard much about the Elgin Marbles dispute with the British Museum, in which these incredibly stunning white um, sculpture plaques were stolen from the Parthenon and are now presented at the British Museum. And it's somewhat of a conflict with Greece, because they sort of like them back. And if you ever go to the Parthenon Museum in Athens, they are so passive-aggressive. There are, like, spaces on the walls, and it's like, this is where we'd put them if we got them back. But stealing a treasure is not that implausible. Take the Amravati railings. Limestone plaques that covered the facade of a temple. These intricate carvings, depicted the scenes from the life of the Buddha, were stolen and given to the British Museum. The Buddha Sakyamuni was a two-metre-tall statue of the deity, was robbed and discovered upside down in a wall in Birmingham, and it got sold to someone in the Midlands and is in Birmingham City Museum. The Saraswati statue, depicting the Hindu and Jain, goddess of knowledge, music and learning, was at a temple in central India. It was acquired by the British Museum in 1886. The reference to the diamond could legitimately be a reference to the Kohinoor, the massive, massive egg diamond, which is in the scepter in um, the crown jewels. Yeah, that's that's reasonable. Empire is not just perpetuated through these very, very specific references. Empire is also perpetuated through literature. Think about other contemporaries of A.C. Doyle. You've got Rudyard Kipling, he of the Jungle Book fame, who is considered somewhat um, dodgy by current standards of political correctness. You have people like Ryder Haggard. You have these very dramatic serials where you know there is a lone explorer and he's saving things think indiana jones style but a little bit earlier because indiana jones is like 40s or supposed to be that kind of vibe like a swashbuckling hero and that is um 
that is what he's competing against. That's the tradition he's coming from. Sherlock Holmes is the quintessential Englishman. He is solving everything. And all of these are imperial problems, which are coming back home. The recording I played you at the start was from 1939. And it was a very short history of the Empire, which you can find on the Pathé Films website, if you want to see it, with imagery. And that perpetuating the, this glorious, quote-unquote glorious, I'm making air quotes, but you can't see it, because this is an audio-only medium. That's what's perpetuating this glorious image. And this is a question that I've been turning around in my head for a while. Is Conan Doyle making a statement about the Empire when he's writing this? Is he saying the Empire is in decline, problems that were there are now here, and the reliable homes will save the day? Or is he just reflecting things that are going on already? So he's not making a deliberate statement, he's just writing what he knows. And what he knows is a Britain that is at the centre of a concept of a wider Britain, which is the Empire. And honestly, I wish I had an answer to this, because I'm flip-flopping back between the two. Is he creating his own image of Empire to share with us? Or is he just reflecting the images that he sees? I don't know. Answers on a postcard, please. Um, I'm not giving you my address, but uh, just write Catherine, South London, S-E... And I'm sure it will reach me. Well, thank you very much for listening. SDR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. I am as ever Catherine. And next week we were going to be talking about fears. Fears and scary, scary things. Thank you very much for listening.